The theme is the cross this morning. What Jesus did for us when he went and died was no accident. It was not something out of his control. It was that for which he came. The message is entitled, The Reversals at the Cross. And and the point I want to make to you this morning is when you read Scripture, don't just read it at face value. Read the depth of it. Read what the inspired words are trying to say. Because to the Christian, to the one who knows who Jesus is and what he accomplished, there's great depth and beauty to um, to what is written. The sermon is entitled, The Great Reversals. And I was listening to uh, Suzanne's song, uh, The Instrument, Make Me an Instrument of Thy Peace. It's, it's about reversals too. There's so much in the Gospels about this because a lot of times what you expect is not what you find. Take what you expect and turn it around 180 degrees and that's what you find so often. Suzanne was singing, where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's, there's despair, hope, where there's darkness, light, where there's sadness, joy. You see the reversal. If you see something that's evil, give it something good. And you have no idea what God can do with that. And so I've got four things that happen at the crucifixion that reflect a lot more depth to those who understand and know what's happening than just the words on the page. Matthew 27, verse 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole battalion before him. The whole battalion, hundreds. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe upon him, plating a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. That's significant. Kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat upon him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put on his own clothes, and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they came upon a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. This man they compelled to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mingled with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. Over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with vinegar, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. 
And Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Bow with me. God, thank you for taking what is the ugliest, cruelest, most vicious form of execution ever devised by the evil mind of man and turning it into the powerful symbol of victory. Thank you for turning what was hopeless into our only hope for salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen. There are reversals that happen that Good Friday at the cross. Take what you'd expect, turn it around, and that's what you see actually transpiring. There's so many sad ironies that happen in life. I remember uh, in 1989, the top teenage driver of the year died in an auto accident in 1990. Michael Doucette of Concord, New Hampshire, taught violin, played in the Philharmonic Orchestra, the winner of the Safe Driving Award in 1989, killed in a car accident the following year. Do you remember James Fix, who wrote all the books about jogging and running in the 1980s and turned jogging into a craze? Best-selling books. He preached the gospel that active people lived longer. Died of a heart attack while jogging at the age of 52. Now, that's not a good excuse not to exercise. But I'm just saying that, that things happen. I remember, too, I love humor that has a twist, unexpected twist to it. I've heard so many jokes that few make me laugh, but I still remember one that Bobby Bowden told when he was here for an FCA banquet several years ago. He said um, at his age now, he and his wife usually travel together as they go out of town, and he usually lets her do most of the driving. He just has his hands on the steering wheel. There are so many reversals in the Gospels. Reversals in Matthew's Gospel. Actually, uh, the Gospel of Luke, you see most of the things turned around, and the Gospel of John has a lot of irony in it. But the Gospel of Matthew here, even at the cross, there are reversals that are taking place. Four things most people don't even notice, but for the Christian with eyes to see and ears to hear, there are deeper meanings going on here. And the first one is obvious. He is mocked as a king. In verses 27 through 30, they put a crown on him, thorns on his head, a reed in his hand. Hail, king of the Jews. And then when he was crucified, they put the placard over his head because crucifixion was supposed to, to be a detriment to criminals. It was supposed to, to keep people from wanting to, to go there. And so they, they put the, the crime in a a placard over the head of the one crucified and over Jesus, the charge against him was, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. It was customary in that day to beat people as part of the interrog interrogation. And so Jesus faced that kind of scourging and beating. And then the soldiers did it again before the execution. It was, I guess it was fun and games for them. Verse 27, they took him into the praetorium, gathered the whole company a hundred soldiers in front of him, stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, treating him like he were a king and putting a, a crown of thorns and put a staff in his right hand. Elsewhere it says they took the staff and bashed him against the head again and again, mocking him and driving those thorns even more deeply into his scalp 
And you know how freely the scalp bleeds when it's, when it's cut. They covered his eyes and hid him. Go ahead, prophesy. Who hit you? Ha! Hail your majesty. It was barracks room, locker room humor. And so they made fun of Jesus for being a king, but we know the truth, don't we? What? He really was a king. He really was. Matthew opens his gospel with Jesus' lineage. He is the line of King David, just as the Messiah was supposed to be. And, and in the trial, Pilate has him standing before him, and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate was asking for a political answer. Are you any threat to Caesar? Are you trying to, to foist some kind of political revolt or rebellion here? Pilate sees he's not planning a military takeover, so he wants to set him free. But Jesus is a king, just not the kind they had ever seen before, not the kind they expected the Messiah to be. They wanted a king who would rule by force and kill and fight and win. How could God's Messiah not be like that with all of his miraculous power? But you and I know that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He stands with God in creation. According to Colossians 1, all things were made by him and for him and through him and without him not anything was made that was made. He is king, but what sort of king is this? A king whose crown is thorns, whose throne is a cross, whose scepter is love. They mocked him for being a king and they didn't know how right they were. For there would another, never be another king who would even be worthy to stoop and tie the laces on his sandals. They didn't know he was king when they said he was. But we do. Because of the reversal that took place. The second thing is how powerless Jesus appeared in his crucifixion. And let me say from the outset that nothing happened that day on Good Friday that Jesus did not allow to happen. No one had control over him. No one made him do anything he wasn't willing to do. He could have stopped it anywhere along the line. He could have called down 10,000 angels, but he allowed it to happen. Crucifixion was a horrible public spectacle. Not only was it physically excruciating, but it was also humiliating. Romans, it was, it was such a hideous form of execution, it was reserved only for slaves and rebels. Children were not allowed to talk about it. Children were, were not allowed to see it. It was so revolting and barbaric. When you pick up a crossbeam to carry it to crucifixion, you are a dead man walking. Only the pain lay ahead. Verse 39 says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their head. Wagging their head is what the Greek says, which is what you do in the presence of blasphemy. You're going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days. Well, then save yourself if you think you can do that. Come down from that cross if you are the Son of God. You see, over in John 2, Jesus did say that he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. Only those who listening didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't have a clue until after his resurrection, the disciples were able to look back in retrospect and understand the complexity, the depth of what he was saying. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken, it says in, in John's gospel. Then they realized 
that when Jesus spoke about a temple, he wasn't talking about bricks and mortar, the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about himself as the temple of God. Because when you stop and think about it, what is a temple? A temple is a place where people meet God. A temple is a place of sacrifice. A temple is a, is a place where sin is atoned for. And that's what Jesus did. That's who he was. He was the person where we met God. He was the person of sacrifice. He was the person where our sin is atoned for. So everything that happened in the temple, Jesus accomplished in himself. Tear it down. And three days later, it will be rebuilt. And that, of course, referring to the resurrection. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, suffering in shame, while he was too weak to even grasp another breath, he was powerfully destroying the temple and getting ready to raise it up again. While he was dying, what looked like the most powerless, the weakest, the most vulnerable time in his life, what was really happening was the most powerful event in all of mankind, in all of the history of the world that ever could be. What looked like the most powerless, Jesus was exercising the most power. He was on his way to death, yes, but following that was the resurrection. And while they were mocking him for his weakness, he was doing everything he said he would do. He seemed utterly powerless, but he was overwhelmingly powerful. And incidentally, he tells us to take up our crosses daily and follow him. And, and we usually interpret that in a kind of a simplistic way. Taking up a cross, yes, well, you know, I have a toothache today. I have a cross to bear. I have an obnoxious in-law. I have a, a little arthritis this morning. But in the first century, let me tell you, they knew what the cross was. And if you were bearing a cross... You were going out in shame to die to yourself. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to die to ourselves because in dying, we're born again to eternal life. That's the secret to our power. It says in 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I am strong. I will therefore glory in the insults and persecution and tribulation so that Christ's strength might be manifest in me, because when Jesus looked the most hopeless, the most, the most powerless, that was when he was the most powerful. The greatest event in history was being transacted. The third thing that is really, really phenomenal here is Jesus doesn't save himself. The chief priest, the teachers of the law, they gather around him and mock him. Verse 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. You thought about that? He saved others, but he cannot save himself. That's true. That's true, isn't it? It had to be either others or himself. It couldn't be both. And Jesus chose others. I cut out a newspaper article several years ago because it, it just touched me. See, it's turned yellow. Father crushed to death while saving son. 
byline Ringgold, Georgia. Father of four was crushed to death by a three-ton storage shed while protecting one of his sons. The 11-year-old was lying beneath a building when one of the concrete blocks propping it up began to crumble Saturday afternoon. His father, Randy Baker, slid underneath the building and placed himself between the building and the boy. The child escaped with minor injuries, but the father was trapped. He held the building up until the little boy could get out. Catoosa County Deputy Coroner Richard Baxter said the guy is a hero. They were jacking up the wood and metal building in their front yard to put an axle underneath it so the shed could be moved. His wife and one of the daughters on the front porch were home when they saw the accident call for help. The 42-year-old was pronounced dead at the scene. He worked at World Carpet in Dalton. You see what happened? His 11-year-old son, they were jacking up a storage shed and his son got underneath it and one of the blocks that was propping it up began to crumble and it was coming down on his son. And his father saw what was happening and in order to save his son, he crawled underneath the building and pushed up as long as he could so that his son could wiggle out, but then his strength gave out and the building came down on him and crushed him and suffocated him. He could have saved his son, he could have saved himself, but he couldn't do both. And so he chose to save his son and forfeit his life in the process. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. The chief priests were mocking. They said he saved others. He cannot save himself. And that's exactly right. That's what the gospel of Matthew is all about. It takes Jesus to the cross and he dies for our sake and rises again for our justification. Jesus came for the express purpose of saving his people from their sins. Let there be no doubt that this is exactly what Jesus came to do, to save us from our sins. But the chief priests and elders and scribes were mocking him. He had purportedly saved all kinds of people from disease and suffering and shame and adultery. Jesus, you saved all these people. Why can't you do it for yourself? Because he couldn't do both. It was either save others or save himself. Either one or the other, but not both. And Jesus chose to save others. So while they were busy laughing at him and mocking him, saying he can't save himself, he was doing what he came to do. He was busy saving others. So in one sense, they did get it right. He couldn't save himself and others. And so he chose to save others. They thought he couldn't do it because he was powerless. It wasn't that he was lacking power. He came to do the Father's will. And the reason he couldn't save himself was not due to any physical limitation. It was due to personal constraint. He refused to save himself because he knew in giving himself, in giving his life, he would be atoning for the sins of the world. He willingly sacrificed himself in order to save his people from their sins. He's mocked as king, and he is king. He appears powerless when he's accomplishing the most powerful thing in the world. He couldn't save himself and others, and he chose to save others. Fourth and finally, he looks forsaken. Verse 43, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he says, I am the son of God. And then coming down to verse 46, my God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? A lot, a lot of commentators miss this, I think, because they think Jesus in his gloom and despair is wondering if somewhere along the way he made a mistake. He's wondering if he's been abandoned by God and, and somewhere he made a wrong turn and he feels despair on the cross, so it's okay for us to feel despair. That's what some commentators say. They're dead wrong. This is not Jesus saying, oops, I made a mistake here. I wasn't supposed to end up on the cross. From the beginning of his call to ministry, he is aware of the fact that he is heading toward Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will culminate in the cross. It was not a surprise. The crowds are mocking him. He trusts in God. Let God save him now while he's crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is aware of abandonment because in 2 Corinthians 5 it says, he who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In that moment, a great eternal transaction was taking place. The perfect, holy, sinless, spotless Son of God, Jesus Christ, in that moment took all the weight of sin upon himself. And God in his holiness had to remove himself briefly from that presence because a holy God could not countenance such ugliness and horror and sin even in the life of his only begotten Son. And in that moment, Jesus took the burden of sin upon himself and paid the penalty once and for all, for all men, for all time, if they will forget, for, confess their sin and find forgiveness in him. Despair, yes. Pain, absolutely. Suffering, unbelievable. Rejection from a unity with the Father that had stretched backwards to eternity. Not a change of plan. Not a, oops, I messed up here. The whole point is that Jesus suffers like this, not to show us how to suffer, but so that we wouldn't have to. He suffers not to show us how to suffer, how to, how to toughen up. He suffers like that so we wouldn't have to. He is a king. He is powerful. He declines to save himself so that he can save others. And he is forsaken, briefly, to save us. Do you remember the movie that came out, good night, probably 20 years ago, actor Kevin Bacon in the movie Footloose? It's a movie about dancing, and he's frustrated because he can't get this small town to allow the young people to have a, a senior prom and dance. And so he gets aggravated and he goes to a warehouse and does all these gymnastic moves. His son, six years old, is seeing the movie for the first time. And he comes in to talk to his dad. He says, Dad, you know that thing in the movie where you swing from those rafters in the building? That's really cool. How did you do that? And Kevin Bacon said, well, I didn't do that, son. That was a stuntman. Dad, what's a stuntman? Well, son, he's somebody that dresses like me and does the things that I cannot do. Oh, he walked out of the room a little confused. A few minutes later, he comes back in and says, Dad, I saw you swinging around that bar. Um, you, you, and you, you swing around and you spin and you land on your feet. How did you do that? And Bacon says, well, I didn't do that either. That was a gymnastics double. Dad, what's a gymnastics double? 
We'll sign it with someone who dressed in my clothes and does the things that I can't do. And there was silence for Bacon's son for a little while. And then he said in a concerned voice, Dad, exactly what did you do in the movie? <laughs> and Kevin Bacon said, well, son, I guess I just got all the glory. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He did for us what we could not do. He looked like us so we might be like him. That's the grace of God in our lives. He took our sin upon himself and did what was too dangerous, what was impossible for us to do. And we stand forgiven and bask triumphantly in his glory. Because everything he did was for you and me. Let's bow together. God, even in the ugliness of the cross, there is such beauty if we can see what is really happening. Because not only was your beloved son killed in such a way to prolong suffering and pain. He was also paying the penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. Help us to see it for what it is and to love you for who you are and to live for you with every day, every moment that you give us. We're yours. For in dying to ourselves, we do have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.